Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. And I hope that you had heard me previously when I hosted a podcast titled The Outspoken Oncology. You are stuck with me as your host, but with a different title and with a new podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Many things have led to me changing the title and venturing into a new type of podcast. I would say, first, and what's really important, and for those of you who have listened to me over the past year and a half, when we started this adventure in February 2019, I do tackle many topics outside of oncology. We do talk about a lot of healthcare issues. And I really felt that outspoken oncology did not always reflect the actual scope of the topics that I cover. I wanted to make sure that the title of my podcast is a true representation of the content. So this way, if anyone is interested in healthcare, they will be able to find my podcast. The first one, or Outspoken Oncology, you would have to really be interested more in oncology. And I think you probably have seen me cover a variety of topics, from healthcare policy to... Actually, we did cover the intersection between politics and healthcare on a couple of episodes. We talked about social media. We talked about 340B. We talked about cannabis. We had episodes with book authors. We discussed medical education, mentorship, and certainly we talked about oncology as well. But I really wanted to have a podcast that is more reflective of the content. The other thing that is also important for you to know is that the original podcast, Outspoken Oncology, was produced by the Journal of Clinical Pathways. And I really wanted to produce that uh, show on my own with a couple of uh, friends, but I really wanted to maintain complete ownership of this podcast. Because the Outspoken Oncology was produced by the Journal of Clinical Pathways, it is now owned by HMP and the Journal of Clinical Pathways. And they have done really a great job in helping me produce this show and bring it to you for over a year and a half. We actually had probably about 95 episodes and we won two awards. And I really want to thank the Journal of Clinical Pathways and HMP Global for producing the Outspoken Oncology. But I wanted to really have a podcast that I have the full control over in terms of production and ownership. And the only way to do that was to move on to a a different type of a title and to proceed accordingly. So you're stuck with me. So pretty much you really have no other choice. You still have to listen to me. And I would really appreciate your support as we move into this new podcast. So uh, with that in mind, if you can refer a friend or a colleague to the show and tell them that this is the same host, but it's now titled Healthcare Unfiltered, I would really appreciate that. If you can find us on iTunes and write us a brief review, give us just a the stars that you think we deserve. You know, I think I hope that I have earned your trust over the past 18 months. I hope that I have earned your loyalty 
and that you have really enjoyed the topics that I was fortunate to cover. I also want to really thank all of the prior guests that have appeared on the Outspoken Oncology, and uh, I look forward to having uh, many of them come back and visit with me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I also expect that we will have many new guests and uh, new formats. What you're probably going to see on Healthcare Unfiltered is uh, a couple of uh, new things. Number one, we're going to definitely continue to have uh, similar dialogues about very important topics when it comes to healthcare, policy, mentorship, education. Uh, But I am going to add more flavors of clinical advances in various topics of healthcare, not just in oncology. And the way I'm going to do that is by really having more than one guest present on the podcast. I actually always feel that having more than one person, this dialogue, the continuous dialogue, always brings a little bit more of an interesting uh, topic. I'm going to have a little bit more debates than we did on the prior podcast. And look, I really am going to always look forward to your comments, your feedback, your opinions, because you, the listeners, have always made the podcast what the podcast is supposed to do, supposed to be. And I'm certainly hopeful that you, uh, I, I will earn your trust, I will earn your loyalty, I will earn your support as we venture into healthcare unfiltered. Okay, that was a long introduction, but I do believe it was important to at least give you a context into what uh, the rationale and the reasons. And uh, I wanted to start the first episode of Healthcare Unfiltered by having two cardiologists, Dr. Vink Murthy and Dr. Anish Koka. Dr. Murthy is a professor at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Anish Koka is a private practice cardiologist in Philadelphia. And the reason I really wanted them to come on the show is to talk about COVID-19 and the heart. There are so many issues that you have heard in the lay press, the media, as well in the peer-reviewed literature about how COVID-19 may impact the heart. There was a lot of uh, several papers about uh, performing MRI imaging on the heart and these findings that we see and what they, what they actually mean for athletes and so forth. So needless to say, there's a lot of uh, controversy about this. And I think many cardiologists were vocal about the flaws in the papers that suggested that there are some damage to the heart that could occur because of COVID-19. So I thought I'll bring two cardiologists to talk about the issue, to dissect the issue, and to hopefully shed some light into the problems with some of these publications and these papers, but more importantly, to make sure that we set the record straight. Let's set the record straight, and let's just make sure that we actually know the facts when it comes to COVID-19 and the heart. So welcome to the first episode of Healthcare Unfiltered a Chadi Nabhan podcast, and to the first episode on COVID-19 and the heart. Well, it's really a pleasure to have two uh, amazing cardiologists with me on today's podcast. Dr. Vink Murthy, Professor you want to introduce yourself? You are recently installed as a professor. Congratulations. Very, very happy for you. And I think uh, we, you know, it couldn't have happened to um, uh, a better individual. So, Vink, just a little bit about you. Introduce yourself and, and what you do outside of Twitter and social media. Yeah, so I, I'm, my name is Vink Murthy. I'm a cardiologist. I work at the University of Michigan. 
Uh, and uh, my focus is actually in areas of uh, cardiovascular and cardiometabolic disease prevention. We do uh, we use a variety of methods for that, including uh, advanced cardiac imaging, including things like cardiac MRI, uh, as well as uh, biomarkers and other methods as well. Wonderful. I also have Dr. Anish Koka, who is well known on social media of being shy. He does not always express his views. Uh, you know, he's very, you know, mild mannered and, you know, Anish, uh, I'm giving you this platform and, and uh, Anish is the co-host of uh, the Koka and Akkad um, report, which is one of my favorite podcasts, actually. I'll listen to it uh, religiously. So uh, Anish, a little bit about you and where you practice. Yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mild mannered uh, cardiologist. I'm in private practice. And uh, my job is to interpret what uh, folks like Venk say and try to translate it into, into practice. <laughs> So, uh, so I've uh, we have like you said we co-host the Cod and Coca uh, podcast, which uh, focuses on health policy. I'm super interested in health policy and how it affects uh, clinicians on the, on the ground. So I kind of see myself as a as a kind of a pro uh, pragmatic clinician advocate. So thanks for thanks for having me on. Okay, so I want to talk all things COVID-19 and the heart because as a non-cardiologist myself, I don't remember when this happened, but I woke up one day and I saw everybody on Twitter and social media talking about a paper and something COVID-19 and the heart and and all the thought leaders are arguing about something and I, I got lost. I started trying to follow what's going on to be educated. So I'm going to try to um, help listeners understand what's going on. Vink, take us through... What actually happened that started generating the, convert, the controversy? What, what, take us back a couple of weeks ago and what actually happened? Yeah, just briefly, I think it actually even goes further back in that uh, we've known for, for quite some time, it became pretty, pretty clear early on that uh, folks with cardiovascular risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, advanced age, male gender, uh, are at higher rate of complications from COVID. So there's been some, um, some thoughts for some time that, that there may be important cardiovascular implications of COVID infection. There's also basic science that shows that uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, binds to the uh, ACE2 receptor. And so again, that is a tie to the cardiovascular system. And then um, Anish points out uh, frequently that there were uh, on social media a lot of uh, images presented from Wuhan and other areas early on in the in the outbreak that uh, showed young people um, passing out suddenly, and this was ascribed to uh, sudden cardiac arrest potentially. And and overall, there've been a number of case reports of cardiac involvement, myocarditis, and other sorts of things in in uh, COVID patients, but they were scattered and relatively uh, uh, um, sparse. And then most of them either did not have biopsy data or the biopsy data was uh, reassuring, meaning that they did not show myocarditis, although some of them were not totally normal, as you would expect in a patient who is having systemic inflammation and is really sick. Uh, a few weeks ago, a paper came out of Germany, really quite an impressive effort if you think about it. They recruited 100 people uh, who were recovered from COVID uh, to, and, and various degrees of severity. Some of them were hospitalized, some were not. Um, and all of them underwent a cardiac MRI. And they compared these cardiac MRIs to two groups. One is a really super healthy group with no cardiac risk factors, uh, generally young. Um, and then another group where they tried to match the cardiovascular risk factors. So age, 
sex, things like diabetes, smoking, etc. And the impressive thing is that despite the outbreak, for us, we know it's really hard for us to continue to do existing research here. We, we've struggled with this, with all of the regulations and restrictions. These guys were able to launch an entirely new research project and recruit quite a large number of people in just a few months. So you've got to give them a lot of credit. But there was also a flip side to this, which is that uh, the paper came out and it showed abnormalities, a variety of different abnormalities in a very large percentage, depending on which ones you want to count. It was clearly into the majority, even 60, 70% or more uh, of individuals in the COVID recovered group had something that was uh, outside of what you would call purely straightforward normal. However, there were also abnormalities seen in the risk factor match control group and not almost at the same rates in some cases. And some of the abnormalities that were seen in that group were far too common. Things like moderate to large pericardial effusions. Now Chadi being an oncologist might unfortunately have patients that experience this, but truly normal people who might have diabetes or hypertension, larger effusions like this should not be very common. And they had quite a few of them actually. And then there were also a number of statistical anomalies that were pointed out by uh, Daryl Francis, who's a brilliant guy from Imperial College of London. He's a cardiologist and has, has uncovered a number of, of prior statistical issues with papers. Uh, and these were real serious issues. They suggested that, you know, maybe not enough care was taken in the initial statistics. Um, for, and, and eventually a correction was issued and it actually was relatively quickly, maybe about a week or two, uh, but it was a pretty large correction, to be honest with you. Virtually every number in the paper changed. Uh, there were a number of points about the example cases that changed. The actual correction statement was almost a full page, which is the largest I've ever seen. Most prior corrections you've probably seen, there's a paragraph summarizing, hey, we forgot to include one or two, somehow the denominator was off by one or two or, or something like that, one or two sentences. This was literally a full page in JAMA Cardiology, a very prominent uh, journal. So it was, it was impressive that they were able to fix all those issues so quickly. That being said, the message that a huge fraction of these patients who weren't having cardiac symptoms at the time of their scan, and many of whom had very mild cases of COVID, had abnormalities in the heart was shocking. And many people took this and said, oh my goodness, we're going to have a rash of heart failure. There are people having the equivalent of a heart attack uh, in their heart, even with mild COVID or asymptomatic COVID cases. And quite frankly, I think both of these are not supported by the data we have. I think the data we've seen from this group and then little bits of data from others suggest that it's worthwhile for us to think about this and look at this carefully. But I think we're far from being able to say that we, the, the general public should be concerned about serious damage to their hearts after a mild or, or asymptomatic case of COVID. Vink, did the correction that they issued nullify the findings completely or did it mitigate the findings? It wasn't as large. Well, here we get into a matter of interpretation. So the text that the authors wrote and that the journal editors wrote 
um, states that the findings largely were preserved. However, when you look at the actual numbers and you look at the differences that are found, the differences actually now look much more modest. In some cases, may not even be statistically significant, depending on how you do the math and look at it. So one of the important points is this is not a randomized trial. The controls are not, were not randomly assigned. They were picked carefully out of clinical patients that came to that group's laboratory for a clinical MRI. Um, so there are biases as to who gets an MRI for various reasons. Uh, but beyond that, not every patient who has diabetes is the same. Not every patient who is a given age of 65 or 70 or, or 50 are all the same. People have different lived experiences through their whole life. They have different patterns. How much did they smoke? How badly was their blood pressure elevated? Did they take medicines promptly or did they forget to take their medicines or, or refuse to take their medicines? So while they may seem somewhat similar on the surface, we don't really know that they're equivalent. And the numbers are actually not that far apart. The last important point though, is that there are so many abnormalities in the control group. Again, a majority, depending on how you count it. Uh, you have to ask the question, if a majority of people without COVID or close to it have these abnormalities, what is the clinical implication of these abnormalities? Yeah. Is this going to, is this a, a major thing? Or is this something where, yes, you can say that isn't quite normal, but lots of people are in this range for a variety of reasons, including maybe a small contribution from COVID. Right. So Anish, this is where it's, it, it all started. A um, couple of questions to you uh, that I didn't ask, Venk. Number one, um, the paper looked at cardiac MRIs uh, in real life, in real practice, outside of a research study. Uh, when, when do you guys order cardiac MRIs? What, what are the indications in general? Is this something that you use with, when you have a viral inflammation of the heart or myocarditis? Is this something that you normally do? Or did, is this only done in research purposes? And my second question to that is, as you saw the output of that paper, what led you, I guess, to do critical appraisal of it? I mean, versus just, you know, taking it face value, JAMA cardiology, you know, all of that stuff as a practicing cardiologist. Yeah, those, those are great questions. And those two questions are related because we have, um, we do use cardiac MRI an awful, um, not an awful amount. We're using it certainly a lot more now than we were 10 years ago because cardiac MRIs do provide these beautiful pictures of the heart and gives us these amazing views of, of, of the structure of the heart, uh, a, a valve disease. And then there are some infiltrative diseases that are uh, that you know, were in the past difficult to diagnose, required more invasive testing, and, and they can certainly help, help us uh, make those diagnoses. But one of the, one of the, one of the things that I've, I've really found um, practicing in an age when cardiac MRI has become much more prevalent is that it's really, really important what the, what the basis for doing the cardiac MRI is. Um, so you have to have some type of a reasonable, strong suspicion of what you're looking for, for the cardiac MRI to be useful. Um, and that really applies for all the different things that, that, you're, that you're sending people usually get cardiac MRIs for. So if you're, you know, I think cardiac MRIs specifically, and this is maybe my bias, and this is why when this paper came out, I looked at it a little closer. Cardiac MRIs, I find, are super useful when I have, you know, a reasonable suspicion for, say, sarcoid or for, for amyloidosis or for... Um, you know, um, ARVDC, you know, this arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, you know, a young person with syncope with an abnormal 
echocardiogram, echocardiogram the syncope is unexplained and there's something on the EKG that's suggestive, there's something on the echo that is suggestive of something not being right. Now the cardiac MRI can very nicely be used to help establish a diagnosis and then, and then follow these folks out. And, you know, I can guarantee if we stick with the syncope example, I can guarantee you if we sent every single person who had syncope, every young person with syncope, that's a kind of a common thing, the vast majority of folks who, pa who, who pass out when they're young, it's usually usually benign. There's some alarm findings that result in consultation with cardiologists, and then you know we decide with further further testing and stuff. But if we sent every single young person with syncope to get a cardiac MRI, you would end up with a mass of of, of data that you just would not have. You would just not not know what what to do with. So so you know it, it kind of you know the the, the 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 just the presumption of the paper, which was we're going to take people that have recovered from COVID-19 and we're just gonna scan them with, without attention to exactly you know, how sick they were, whether they had some significant cardiac issue when they were ill with COVID. No, we're just gonna take 100 folks who recovered from COVID just to see. And right there for, for me, um, you know, this, was a, this is gonna be a suspect, a suspect study because you know, we just don't, want we, we don't we don't do that in in cardiology with with almost with almost anything um so so yeah and 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 as venk nicely outlined yeah you end up with a bunch of abnormalities that are seen and partly because the experience with cardiac mri and these abnormalities is relatively new we don't have a great idea of what those findings mean prognostically we don't even know if those findings will stay there uh, you know, if we were to do another cardiac MRI in 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 six months, so it, uh, it it's it's really opening up Pandora's box. And and I felt I wrote uh, a Medscape uh, piece on this because I was stunned that this paper was being used in any way to make actual decisions in real life. <laughs> like this is a paper to be dissected by smart guys like like Venk. Bank and colleagues, but you know, I, yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of taken back by that. So, Vink, um, let me also back up a little bit. Is this a failure of the peer review process? Because obviously, I mean, for for a paper for a journal like JAMA Cardiology, I mean, I presume you guys, I presume it's a big paper in the cardiology world. Is this a failure of the peer review process? And then, B, what led them to? tracked or to make issue the correction was it was it that you guys uh, the social media pressure the letters to the editors like what happened because it could have easily actually been there and never corrected i mean what happened to trigger all of this so first i just want to 100 percent echo what anish said at the end which is the design of the study in the first place was i think i think better suited to answer a kind of intellectual question of how is COVID working? What is the potential implications? Rather than to answer a specific question about how we should treat these patients or what we should do in the management of COVID in general. And unfortunately, that leap was made. Now to go back to your specific question, um, actually the, the editors and the authors in the corrections say, state that the, uh, the, uh, this was done in response specifically to social media uh, uh, post-publication peer review. And I, I do think it should be called peer review because the people discussing it are all peers. And, uh, and my definition of peers are people who have interest and reasonable skill and 
and come sincerely to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the paper and how to apply it. And that could happen at the water cooler, that can happen in letters to the editor, it could happen on Twitter, it could happen, it could happen anywhere. I have great intellectual conversations with our neighbors down the street who also happen to be in medicine and science when we're, we're watching our kids play, you know? So what difference does that make? And I think in this case, it's, it's, it's shown that the post-publication peer review is an essential and critical part of the process. Now, is this a peer review failure? Well, first of all, I don't think peer review can ever be perfect, right? If we set the standard that no paper should get through peer review unless it is 100% rock solid, I don't think anything would ever get published, right? So I think we have, we have sort of a reasonable uh, expectation standard. Um, and I believe that JAMA Cardiology is an excellent journal. I believe the reviewers that they generally use are intelligent people who have the right skill sets needed to answer most of the questions of peer review. But bluntly speaking, peer review is much better at saying, here are papers that are interesting, meaning uh, addressing important questions that the, general pub that the general cardiology community or a subspecialty within cardiology, if that's the journal, would find interesting. And also talking about broad questions of limitations and strengths or how to make it clearer, what kind of figures might get a point across more easily. Peer review is not so great at finding, you know, you made a mistake with the math. Or in some cases, uh, and we certainly don't know that that's the case here uh, with this paper, but in some cases where a paper was, uh, was, was fraudulently manipulated and we just saw some papers on cardiac MRI not related to COVID retracted in the last week too, where there was evidence of that. So peer review is not designed for that. It sometimes succeeds in getting that. And I would love to have better ways of finding it, but uh, of accomplishing that in, in pre-publication peer review. But ultimately, I think the only way to get to that is post-publication peer review, where an interesting paper will necessarily not just get two or three peer reviewers' eyes on it, but hundreds or maybe even thousands. And when those people can communicate, as opposed to the old days, where I might have seen something that didn't quite sit right in a paper, but I might not have had anybody like-minded enough who was interested in that paper at that time to talk about, it sort of might have fallen apart and not been found. But now if I see something that doesn't sit right, doesn't maybe I'm not understanding it, or maybe there's a mistake, or maybe something more nefarious, I can put a tweet out there. And if other people find this paper interesting, potentially they look at it and they say, you know, Bank, you're totally wrong. You just didn't read this right. That you misinterpreted, or they can say, you know what, you're, you're right. And here's some other things that when I read it, popped out at me as a problem. And that only works because there are, there's a community of hundreds or thousands or even more people who are like-minded and interested in this. And I think we have to encourage this. Unfortunately, many people find this discussion in social media distasteful. And I personally think it's absolutely essential, whether Twitter is the right forum, or somebody could create some other website for this, you know, we can discuss the details of that. But at the end of the day, the internet is here and it's changed every other form of communication we have. Why shouldn't it be central in this as well? Uh, there's one thing I wanted to, and it relates to um, your question, uh, Chadi, about, you know, what, what may have failed. I mean, the conclusions of the paper, uh, you know, the last sentence is, these findings indicate the need for ongoing investigation of the long-term cardiovascular consequences of COVID-19. 
that's the very mild conclusion of 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 what of of the paper. But of course, you know, the issue is is that it gets translated into you know folks like Carl Bergstrom, which are which are regarded as folks that are informers and big time influencers and movers and shakers of of all things COVID. Uh, you know, July 28th, worrisome results to that to out today in JAMA cardiology. 100 relatively young patients, 80% showed myocardial inflammation or other symptoms. And I, I, you kind of want to let the authors off the hook because of the of their conclusions that seem relatively mild. You kind of want to let, I mean, what, the, I mean, are the peer reviewers supposed to disagree with that conclusion? But I'm not sure about that because, you know, the timing of when this paper came out, the, the editor, you know, in terms of discretion of like what comes out, I, I, I'm, I have a hard time believing that the goal from everyone who is involved isn't to say, hey, we have to be really concerned about this. Um, and I got to put this, I got to put this out and we got to put this out because this, this could be something that, that's serious. So, so Anish, it seems like, you know, to, to your point that the conclusion was rather mild, like you said. Uh, there are obviously important intellectual debate that Vink alluded to. And I, I want to give Vink actually um, a credit here because I've seen a lot of the intellectual debates that he is in and they're really, truly intellectual. I want to I give you kudos to this because they're really not, not um, emotional and I think they really stick to facts. While sometimes I see people debating on social medias and they get into a fight where it's just emotional and nobody really is listening to each other. But, but I guess my question is, as I was reading through a lot of the back and forth amongst cardiologists, you know, I don't think uh, Met Twitter or Cardio Twitter was all aligned. I mean, I've seen many people who still think that this is an important paper and that there is really true effect on the heart. And I've seen people like both of you saying, well, maybe, maybe not. So um, while I agree with the post publication, peer review, and the intellectual debate, I think there are still some people out there who don't agree with both of you. What do you say to that, Vink, and then Anish? Because, right, I mean, there are people who say that you both are wrong. Yeah, so first I want to thank you for your kind words. I mean, we all can get caught up in arguments, and I'm sure it's happened to me at times as well. But I, but I think, you know, scientific arguments should be seen as scientific arguments and disagreements, and they're not personal. The question of myocarditis in the, in the heart relate, related to COVID. Uh, I have zero doubt that myocarditis happens. Let's start with that. I also have zero doubt that COVID is an awful situation. It's, a, it's claimed far too many lives and caused so many infections. It's, there's just no question about that. So let's go to the next step. What is the frequency of myocarditis in COVID? What is the frequency of myocarditis in general? So starting out. Myocarditis is not the most common cause of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in general. Although if you look at certain some younger subgroups, it can be an important group, important issue there. The number one cause of myocarditis we believe is viral infection. Although in many cases, viral infections are not proven. They're just suspected where the patient tells you they had you know, a, a flu-like illness a few weeks prior, a, few, a month prior, something like that. In some cases with testing, we can prove the virus is in the heart. In other cases, we just presume the virus is in the heart. Most of those cases though, come to our attention because the patient has 
symptoms. So they're having palpitations, they're having uh, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation that's either causing uh, some symptoms or even to the extent of passing out in sudden cardiac death, or they're having heart failure symptoms. In most of those cases, we will see abnormalities in blood tests, in echocardiograms, potentially in MRIs, in biopsies in some patients. But what we don't do is after routine viral infections, even severe viral infections, we don't go screening routinely with cardiac MRI or other tests weeks and months later. If the person is largely asymptomatic or if their symptoms are within the range of expected for someone who's been through a severe illness. Does that mean those people are not having subclinical myocarditis? Absolutely not, right? So there is probably a normal bell curve distribution of myocarditis type findings with lots of viruses. It's entirely possible that COVID causes it more than other viruses. That COVID certainly in certain age groups and certain populations is causing a lot of morbidity and mortality. However, what we don't know, what, what I don't find plausible is that we've had millions of recognized COVID cases, plus lots of other people who just didn't get tested either because their symptoms were mild, we didn't have enough access to testing, we didn't have uh, availability that was unrecognized or even they were asymptomatic. So we've had millions of these cases and we have not had a rash of myocarditis presenting as sudden cardiac death, presenting as arrhythmias, palpitations, presenting as heart failure. There are some, and there are case reports in the literature. There are other cases that people haven't reported and written about, but we're aware of. What, what the real point of debate is, is this something that is 50%, 70%, 80% of cases without any specific signs of heart involvement that the patient would report to you, or is it something much more modest? And I believe it's something much more modest based on what we know about, um, about COVID so far, what the epidemiology we've seen, what we've seen from various case reports and pathology, there's been autopsy series, there's been biopsy data in some of these papers, and quite frankly, our own sort of clinical intuition and judgment. That being said, I could be wrong, I'm a human being, but what I think the important point here is though, that this is being messaged to the general public, right, as, as something they need to be worried about, and that we, is a reason to do something different. And that I think is a problem, because what we should be doing right now is wearing masks, washing hands, doing social distancing, doing all those things that people talk about. People who have COVID, we need to enroll them in trials to investigate better ways to treat them. We need to treat them as best we know based on general medical principles, but also what we've learned from trials about COVID as well. But there's nothing in particular we would do for these patients to prevent or protect their hearts. There's nothing we can do other than to do what we do for COVID in general, which people have done a lot of great work. There's a lot of unanswered questions. So adding that alarm as something relevant to the general public with those big scary numbers, I think actually doesn't help our discourse. I think it actually makes it harder for us to communicate. I think it leads to some of those emotional battles you see on social media. And I think the real purpose of this paper should be to say, hey, in our hands, we see some things. This is worth investigating further. 
there's some basic science that might be generally supportive of the idea it's not totally off the wall. In, it's a broader problem that extends to other viruses too. So by investigating COVID, we may learn something about influenza and, and other viruses, uh, parvovirus that cause myocarditis in people. Uh, so I think it's worth investigating. I think we should be investing time and energy in research, um, but I don't think we need to tell the general public this is the reason to be alarmed. We have plenty of other reasons to fight COVID. We have plenty of other reasons to, uh, to do all those good public health practices. So I don't think this adds anything to the conversation to add that alarm. So Anish, um, having said that, and what Vink actually articulated, it appears though that that the public has been alarmed, and whether this is because reporters who are not cardiologists are not critical of the cardiology literature, they just read the paper and they just write a, an article in whatever outlet and magazine and newspaper and things get blown out of proportion uh, without critical appraisal of it or not. And, um, and in reading your Medscape column, it, you make the point, at least it's your belief, um, that college sports is or college football is being canceled or or not really the same partly because of that so uh, take us through uh, two things number one do you think that the public is reacting um, out of proportion and sports are being canceled because of this paper on number two uh, how much does the public really have access to your opinion and vink's opinion Versus, versus a reporter in the Washington Post, New York Times, or a different reporter who has a, a half a million followers on Twitter and social media? Well, number one, I'll say that, just, just to add on to what Venk was saying, is that we literally don't, we can't say, based on what we know now, that sitting on a couch and eating bonbons every day, or even if you're in Philly, if you're eating a cheesesteak every day, we, we can't say that that, isn't any worse than catching COVID when it comes to the comes to the the heart. Meaning, I personally believe that eating a cheesesteak every day for for X number of time is probably probably worse. Um, and and we'll give and if we scan those folks um, in some months' time and do a cardiac MRI, it's going to show some abnormalities that we you know don't have much understanding of of of, of what what it is that means uh, long term. And I think you're, you're right in terms of your question about why the public is so concerned. I mean, number one, we do know that it is at least the reporting from ESPN and Sports Illustrated suggests that trainers and medical medical folks and some of the decision makers in these, in these large sports conferences are definitely making decisions in part based on this. I quoted, you know, the SI piece that said, you know, a trainer said this was the last straw, you know, there's already all this all this chaos about starting and whether or not you're going to have COVID and whether it's going to accelerate the epidemic in the wider society. And now you're going to tell me that there's a, there's a, there's a chance that one of my players is going to have serious heart damage long-term then. Yeah. Then the, then the risk benefit becomes like, well, who cares? I mean, uh, yeah, fine. Cancel sports. It's just, it's just college athletics. And that's been, so the question is where did that come from? That's been communicated to a large part of the general public. Now, the interesting thing is, is that I really think, your political lens seems to really impact what it is your thoughts are on this. So for whatever reason, folks that are pro lockdown are, or want to keep locking out or want to keep the lid on are uh, belong to one side and folks that are anxious to open up the economy are on another side. And really, you know, 
if you read the comments on my uh, Medscape piece, you know, there are folks that are just, that, I mean, that seems to be how, how things break, break down. So you have folks that are just against any taking of additional risk. And the question is, why is that? And I really think that that has to do with what the key influencers that are part of their political tribe are saying. So what we've had now is a division or of some sort in the health experts and, and health experts that are, that are not able to keep politics out of their own analysis. So, so, so that analysis of that heart paper, of this heart paper, is unfortunately colored, colored by that and affected by that. And if you have some key public health person on your tribe that's saying, hey, this is, te this is terrible and this is really something that you should be concerned about, you just are not going to listen to anyone else that says something to counter that. It doesn't matter what Venk's argument is. It doesn't matter that you know, X percent, you know, 20 to 50 percent of controls may have the same MRI findings. It, it doesn't matter that biopsies uh, of folks that have, uh, that have endocarditis, so the few ones that are done, endocarditis, the myocarditis, the few ones that are done, don't show cells chocked full of virus. Right? None of that, it doesn't matter that we, we're in, a, we're in an epidemic where we have maybe 40,000 new cases a day. And if you're saying even 30% of them develop myocardial inflammation, you're talking about 12,000 folks with, with some significant myocardial inflammation. It's been six months, you know, cardiology offices are, you know, like mine right now, so empty. Um, like where, where, are, where, are these, where are these patients? All those facts don't matter because there's, you know, it, it basically comes down to a trust issue. What you do is you trust the, the, the public health folks on your team. And that's something that I never thought would happen, right? You would think public health folks would look at the data, interpret things based on the data, regardless of which political team they belong to. And I don't think that's happening anymore. What's happening is all of that is being interpreted based on the underlying politics of it. And then the rest of the folks are like, well, this is a key influencer. He's on the team. He also says this bad stuff about, you know, the other political parties. So therefore, I believe him. And that's really an important piece. Let, let, uh, an issue is, is Carl Bergstrom a cardiologist? Just a curiosity. I don't know. Is he a cardiologist? No, I don't believe so. I think he's an epi epidemiologist uh, in, in the University of Washington, I believe. Because, Vink, I mean, I think, I mean, in fact, that was, in fact, uh, Anish will remind you that uh, I argued with him about six months ago. We had like a very heated argument where I was trying to say that there are certain things I cannot opine on because I feel like I need to get the opinion of a cardiologist when in, in heart matters. Like I can, I can give an opinion, but the reality is I still need to consult with my cardiologist, infectious disease. And Anish, if you remember when the when the pandemic first started, one of the arguments me and you had were, you were asking me, what would you recommend to your patient? And I said, well, sometimes I have to call the ID person or I have to call the, you know, the, because I just don't know enough. And you said, but you have to recommend. And we went back and forth. But that really goes to this because when Carl Bergstrom, as an example, tweeted about the paper on July 28th, Vink, he had 3,275 likes and 2,286 retweets. And I promise you, and he has close to 120,000 followers. And, and again, his reach, his outreach to the media is much larger than yours or Anish. I mean, you have a good reach, but just not as powerful as, as he is. I, I would love for you to have as much of a platform as he does. 
So how do we counter that? Like, how do we, how do you, as a cardiologist who is interested in making sure that the proper information about this paper, about cardiology is disseminated? I know you're not politically motivated. I know that for sure. I know your core values, but you're, you're going against other, other aspects of folks who may be politically motivated. How do you do that? So I actually don't think that most scientists are, are driven by politics primarily. So let me just say that I've spoken with friends and colleagues from the entire political spectrum. And there are lots of people who have concerns about the messaging around this, this COVID myocarditis from across the spectrum, really the most on the left that you can imagine almost. And, and uh, well, you have a niche who's probably the most right that I know uh, uh, person. What I will say is that you're absolutely right that the influencers, some of them have enormous platforms. And that can build up for a variety of reasons. Politics is one of them. But reporters and the general public also like very simple messages. And people who know a lot, you know, if I ask you something, uh, and again, I, know, I don't even know enough to ask you a, a hard question in oncology, but I'm sure they exist, right? And if I asked you a hard question, there are probably many questions that you could talk about for 30 minutes or even an hour about all the different factors and how difficult it is to say what the right true answer is. And you gave that example even just about how you manage your patients with COVID. And I think knowing the limitations of our knowledge and knowing that information, internalizing it, and being able to efficiently say, this is what it's trending towards, this is what the data are hinting towards, but there are signs in the other direction, is never going to give you that simple sound bite, right? And, and in some ways that has hurt those people who know their own limitations and say, stay quiet a lot of times, but speak up selectively, and has also hurt those people who can put a little bit of uh, flavor of what the uncertainties are. So we had an example, I'm going to point to a different person who tweeted out after this paper that uh, it, it would be, um, and after a, a report in the media from the Penn State, uh, one of the Penn State officials, that there may be 30% of, of college athletes who have uh, COVID myocarditis after an infection. It turned out that that was a misremembered anecdotal fact from a report that has been not peer-reviewed. But after that happened, one, one particular uh, very prominent, actually a cardiologist on social media said that essentially all debate was over and that anyone who wanted more information or didn't believe that this was extraordinarily prevalent was a denialist, right? And I think that is a problem, right? Where we have folks that are not just oversimplifying things, but also going to another level where they say that even having a question about it, using the scientific method saying, hey, wait, 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 you told me a statistic, tell me where that came from, what's the numerator, what's the denominator, how did you find these people, what were the definition of myocarditis in these cases? These are all important, legitimate questions. We're not saying that that person's lying, it turned out they were misremembering and it wasn't necessarily data that's been publicly released and subject to peer review of any form, but, uh, you know, I think those are fair questions to ask. And when we have a discourse where people can tell you, no, this is not a legitimate question, I think we have a problem. And I think those are people who need to, we need to rethink whether those people should have those big platforms. And in some cases, these people have platforms, not just in social media, 
they have platforms and that they have a large Rolodex of reporters that they call or reporters have them, a large number of reporters have them in their Rolodexes. They may be in powerful positions in their institutions and committees and various other things. These are, uh, these are challenges. I think the system will equilibrate. I think people see what they see. But right now, there's so much uh, adrenaline in, in many people's veins that they don't, it's not always easy to, to absorb what really is right and wrong. But I think it'll come out eventually over time. It will take some time, though. With regards to college football and college sports, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm the least interested in college football of probably anybody in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? I'm probably absolutely how, at the how did they How did they install you? This is part of the installment, Bink. <laughs> I, I got to say that, you know, I, I personally believe there are so many reasons that one could give to not play college football, uh, ranging from, you know, the, the head injury stuff to you know, just setting an example or a message, concerns over transmission to coaches and staff. There's lots of things they could have given, but I don't believe that this COVID concern should be, should have been uh, the primary driver. And I don't believe it should have been so central to the messaging as to why they chose not to proceed. And I think that was a mistake. It was a strategic error. That's my personal opinion. That's not the opinion, obviously, of the University of Michigan, who's my employer. Uh, but I, but I think, a lot of people take a signal from that. And it does set a, an unusual precedent, which says if a college athlete, a 20 year old kid who is exceptionally in good shape, they can either run or lift weights or whatever it is they can do way better than 99.999, you know, however many nines of people in America and they're young and they're exercising all the time. If they need to have an MRI, just to know they can go back to, to playing, what does that mean for me or for somebody who has a, a number of risk factors who's maybe had some prior smoking, who's a diabetic? Some people get worried. I think there's another important point though. Telling kids who are at that level, this top tier of college athletes who really could have a decent chance of becoming a professional football or basketball or whatever sport player uh, in the long run and potentially benefiting millions or even more than that of dollars in the long run. Okay, we tell them not to play football. Does that mean they don't practice? If they are practicing, do they practice to the same extent they normally would have practiced? Do they do 90%? Do they do 80%? Do they do just a light jog and nothing more? We've seen with the reopening of college campuses where students have been asked not to go to you know, off-campus parties and to congregate in large groups. And of course, there have been many that have not followed the rules. And now you're going to tell a 20-year-old that you know, working out is not just good for your health in general, but might help you stay in shape so that you can become a, a professional football star, but you don't want to do it this semester. And you know, the, the other kid who's on another team from the next state over the you know, other part of the country, he's playing, he's practicing, he's getting his picture on TV, he's getting, his, he's being written about. Who's the, who's the one who's going to be recruited by professional sports? Now, again, I don't know what the, this, the right decision is, but what I can tell you is just canceling the games is really the easy part of the call. What's the, what do you do with everything else behind that? Those are really hard decisions, and there's no science there. And I don't actually think that there's much science about using MRI 
to guide exercise in general. You know, we have patients and each manages these patients, we manage these patients who have had heart attacks, who have heart failure, who have arrhythmias, who have all sorts of different problems, who sometimes we're able to address blockages in a heart attack, but they have other blockages. Sometimes we treat heart failure with medicines and they get a little bit better, but most of them still have abnormalities. But we intentionally encourage exercise. We use structured programs that are based on evidence and data to get them there. And I think we should be thinking about, well, you know, college athletes might be a good example for us to, to use similar approaches. Now, we don't have trial data for that, and the amount of evidence is much fewer. But if you can, as a college athlete, you had COVID, a mild case, a moderate case, or anyone, not just a college athlete, and you get up and you exercise and you say, whoa, I can't do what I thought I should be able to do. First of all, stop. If you're not, if, you're, if your body's telling you to stop, listen to it. What I would do for that person is I would put them on a treadmill and I would test them. And there are a variety of ways to do this in terms of all the different measurements you can make. And we can go, we can talk till, I think it's a conversation for another day, a little bit of shop talk to talk about the details of how you'd make those measurements. But if somebody can exercise on a treadmill, has no arrhythmias, does as well as they should be doing based on what we know of their exercise capacity before, then I don't see why we should be telling that person, don't exercise, don't practice, don't play. And Anish, do you think that we've already started making policy changes based on, I mean, I'll have to say it's a flawed paper. Am I doing it, should I, if I say flawed paper, is that appropriate or do you think I'm being too harsh, first of all? Or maybe maybe our interpretation was flawed. I don't know. Yeah, no, yeah. I think both. I think both are probably accurate. I mean, I think the uh, what you know the what Daryl, uh, Dr. Francis, uh, kind of outlined in terms of um, some of the abnormalities and these implausible ranges. Um, that certainly would suggest this is a flawed paper, and I don't know that the corrections necessarily right are, are necessarily adequate. So no, it's a flawed paper plus. But but the, I guess the bigger problem is the interpretation of it. And that's where, you know, us medicine key influencers just kind of fell totally flat, right? Somebody saying that, uh, you know, somebody even saying that the debate is over or, you know, just leaning into this idea that there are millions of people that are now accruing heart damage. You know, it's just, yeah, I, I think. So, so is there, is there, I mean, are, 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 are decisions being made today? We are taping this on September 6, 2020. It's going to air in a couple of weeks. I mean, is there are, are are folks who are not as critical as you both are making some decisions? Are you aware of your colleagues and other folks who are seeing patients that are yeah. starting to make decisions based on this paper that could have an unfortunate trickle down effect, like what what Vink was outlining? So many other things that could happen later on. Well, well, thanks to Vink and Dr. Francis and uh, others, uh, you know, on social media, I think there's been a big pushback. Uh, um, so, I mean, I hope I hope that's disseminated through the cardiology community. I know it's interesting that the, the CMR first, you know, there's a big CMR first, uh, you know, do you know uh, who, who you know or imaging societies. I noticed that they have not been vocal in opposition to this, but they also haven't necessarily been amplifying this paper. So I get the sense that in the cardiology community, at least, that there is there is trepidation in terms of doing these results. I don't think this was opening the floodgates for cardiologists that you should start doing tests. But, but, but I think the bigger implication of it is not so much cardiologists, hopefully not doing thousands of MRIs, but I think all of this factors into decisions made at the school board level, you know, it's all part of the zeitgeist that, that you kind of developed, right? And, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, when you start seeing 
uh, you know, a school that opens and they have, you know, 100 new cases or something like that. You know, I think it just increases that level of panic and it increases that reaching for the, for the, you know, the eject button and say, all right, that's it, we're done. You know, and, you know, that's not how I think we're going to be able to figure this out and live with the virus and kind of move forward, right? Uh, so, so, yeah, I think decisions are being made, really important decisions are being made. And I think it's super important that we try to get this message out as much as possible that, that you know, the, the panic shouldn't take over, should, the panic shouldn't take over the decision-making. And I think we saw that panic with COVID has been uh, really bad, you know, um, and I think we can, you know, do a post-mortem at some point, you know, a decade from now, but it certainly seems clear from where I'm sitting right now that a lot of our problem, a lot of the damage that's happened uh, has been in part from the panic of the response. And so we definitely don't want to do anything to try to, to try to feed, feed into that. Yeah. And I only have a few, a couple of more minutes. I know you guys have been very generous, but uh, Vink, there was, um, and again, that, that, again, that may not be related to this, but I'll share with you. So Dr. Eric Topol, uh, top cardiologist mentioned, he tweeted, um, uh, September 5, that's yesterday at 3.34 p.m., a very troubling message I just got from a friend of our family. And the message is that yesterday I found that a dear friend of mine in the ICU with post-COVID heart failure. He's 32, incredibly healthy, an avid runner, no underlying heart or health conditions. He was super careful, wore a mask, but contracted COVID in July. He seemed to get over it, but two negative tests, and now we are here. For those who pray, please pray for him. This is not the flu. He did not necessarily comment that this is related to the paper out there, but I mean, and I don't want to really put words in any of your mouth, but, but I can see some folks who, who will insinuate, I mean, they can put one and one together that this is a, this is somebody who's really healthy, has no comorbidities, 32, contracted COVID, and now he's in heart failure in the ICU. Could this be related to myocarditis and what really was reported? Uh, am I overthinking this? Like, you know, am I overthinking this? Like, should this be said, uh, despite this, this is not linked to, to that paper? Should the thought leaders who really have that large following be a little bit more careful in, in what the public might interpret some of these messaging? The, you know, this is a friend of a friend, it seems like, because he's saying it's a message from a friend who's in turn talking about a friend. So, you know, what the details of the case are, we, none of us really know. Prior to COVID, we would have young people presenting with heart failure from unexplained reasons. A lot of them, we presume, are either genetic or due to other viruses pre-COVID, right? So as I said earlier, I don't think any of us are denying that some people have developed myocarditis from COVID. What we don't know is the frequency of it. And, you know, I, I think Dr. Topol has every right to share his family's anecdotes and ask for people's you know prayer and sympathy i think we're all human and people are, are stressed out and um sometimes it's it's helpful to ventilate to people online and we've seen celebrities do this we've seen other other people do this that i i think eric topol has every right to do it in that context what i think the danger is is what you were getting at which is the question of is this a way of saying this is common, this is something that needs to be worried about, this is something to be alarmed about, this validates the research paper from Germany with, despite so many corrections and ongoing concerns about 
the study design and the implications, um, I think that's a, a leap that's problematic, right? And, and I think that's where, you know, I don't have all the right answers. I can't say what Dr. Topol should or shouldn't have done, but it does get very, very hard to separate out our personal uh, messages where we're using social media for, for humor, for, for sympathy, for celebration, and our scientific and, and medical personas as well. And, and that can be very difficult. I, I, none of us turn that down to zero on the personal side. We're human beings. I think we don't want more bots, Russian or human or, or American on, on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, but, but I also think when those are starting to get a little closer together, it probably, you know, I try to give it a second thought. I'm sure I've missed the mark sometimes. And in this case, again, I personally feel tremendous sympathy for, for Dr. Topol's friend or the friend of a friend. I, but I, I don't think that this is meeting the standard of evidence to say that any of the prior work that he's highlighted is or is not valid. I, I think it just doesn't add very much to that conversation. I want to try to have both of you give, you know, more, I would say, kind of final one or two minute closing things because again I'm, I'm not a cardiologist i want to make sure i don't really miss some of the nuances but as you know my listeners are also not cardiologists so i was trying to just uh, simplify what i thought really is a critical topic because it was frankly all over and uh, at least from reading some of the posts i got the impression that some of the decisions being made sports wise and all of these things were related to this one paper so to both of you, I'll start with Anish. A, anything I missed, I should have asked you both and talked about and really important to highlight. And then, you know, a couple of minutes as a closing statement regarding that topic. No, I, I think I got uh, everything. Uh, you know, Bank uh, nicely went over uh, a lot of the reasons why um, uh, we think it's important to kind of not get ahead of where the data is. And, you know, I, 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 I don't, I still, I'm still left perplexed with the idea that I don't think a, a lot of the folks that had a tremendous amount of respect from the entire nation when, you know, and I'm specifically talking about public health experts. Um, I think they aren't realizing kind of the damage that is being done to their credibility and how, how important that's going to be in the months moving forward. You know, there are many things that we can agree on that, that aren't politically related to, lockdowns, right? Um, Vank mentioned masks and and cleaning, you know, hand sanitation, hand hygiene, and uh, trying to distance, trying to avoid large shots. I mean, if, if we, if, if some of these folks show themselves to be so incredibly partisan that their message is clearly being diluted here, um, you know, it's kind of the, the boy that cried wolf, right? Um, I, I think you're going to have real trouble in terms of getting folks to, to uh, you know, pay attention to what shouldn't be political, you know, decisions, uh, you know, down the line. Yeah. First, I want to thank you for having me on again. I think you did a great job. It was just a terrific interviewer. Of course, I'm biased though. So, you know. uh, mm -hmm. But what I'll say is, I, I think my closing message is just that there's a lot we don't know and that we should respect people who respect uncertainty. And um, it's very easy to think that we're, that there's clear answers and that 
we're, we can be definitive about a lot of things. But the truth is that in medicine, we have a lot of uncertainty before COVID, and we have perhaps even greater uncertainty about what we should be doing in COVID. And I think we need to be respectful of people who we disagree with. Um, that doesn't mean we can't get into really serious discussions. And sometimes that'll even mean heated discussions. But I think it, it I, I don't think we should be uh, trying to shut down discussion or, or say that, um, you know, asking for basic scientific evidence, asking for details is not appropriate or, or, or that it shouldn't be done. I think we have to under, encourage discussion wherever sincere people come together to discuss. And it doesn't matter where that is. Um, and we have to use the internet today. It's the, the greatest, I think it's the greatest development in my lifetime and there's no reason we shouldn't be using it for this type of purpose as well. Look, that's really great. I, I really appreciate this because I, I thought it's, a, it's an important topic and I, I, think it's, um, I think we need to highlight some of these issues because hopefully a lot of folks would listen to you and I just wanna, as somebody who is not a cardiologist and barely know where the heart is located in the body, uh, I wanna continue to encourage you to disseminate the accurate information because we do need that voice of reason. And I think you've seen some of my posts are pretty kind of skeptical of how Met Twitter ha had, has become somewhat politicized. I mean, I think that it, it's very difficult sometimes to have that neutral opinion because if you are pro something and you feel there's a paper that supports what you actually, uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you really hated hydroxychloroquine and there's a paper that came says hydroxychloroquine is bad, you are gonna be celebrating and just, you know, disseminate this because it solidified your opinion. If you were pro-hydroxychloroquine and a paper came that says it's good, you're going to highlight this because it solidified your opinion. So I think what you both really bring to the table and the reason I'm really delighted and it was a treat to have you both is that you really take this noise out and you really try to look at the critical evidence and what it is. Uh, I just want to thank you for doing this and keep doing the good work. Thanks so much, Sadi, for having us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate that you stuck around and you listened to the Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. Our first episode was COVID-19 and the heart, and I'm very thankful to Drs. Venk Murthy and Anish Koka for spending some time with us explaining the issues and hopefully letting us all know about some of the shortcomings when it comes to the peer-reviewed literature. And uh, hopefully you know more about COVID-19 and the heart than you knew before. I would love to hear your feedback. You can send me an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com. Uh, I promise that I will definitely get back to you and incorporate your comments and feedback. By the way, we are going to have some listeners on the show because I really want to have listeners to go live and tell me exactly what's going on. And I also will tape a couple of episodes live. So again, we're going to have a lot of new stuff going on on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast, and I appreciate your support. Uh, I want to leave you uh, with this first episode with literally my absolute favorite quote and saying, and I'm going to read all of it because I just simply love this Quote from Theodore Roosevelt. 
It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the most, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? So that his place shall ever be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Until next time, stay safe.